Thank you for listening. This is Israel Rebound, a podcast joining Jews and others in Nebraska to Israel, exploring the ties that bind us through culture, identity, and current events. I'm Alan Podash in Omaha, and I'm joined with my co-host, Liz Felstrin in Jerusalem. Liz, how are you today? Alan, I'm great. Moedim l'simcha. Thank you. Well, today, you're my guest. No, you're my co-host. <laughs> but we're going to talk I'll, about... I'll be both. <laughs> we'll talk a little bit about the holiday of Sukkot and how it's being observed in Israel versus how different it is observed or really not observed really in America. And so the dichotomy between the joyous nature of it uh, in Israel and more of the obligation to um, observe it in America. So quickly, why don't you give us a rundown of how you and your family are observing Sukkot and what you see uh, across the country in Israel? Sure. So um, I don't know that there is a great American parallel because Sukkot is a holiday when most of the country in Israel are on vacation for a full week, right? It's not a long holiday weekend like a Thanksgiving or a 4th of July. It's a full week. And depending on how the first and last days of the holiday fall each year, you have some number of days in, in between Cholmoed that are not Shabbat. And because they're in this vacation festive holiday spirit, but they're not Shabbat, Israelis of all stripes and religious orientations have the opportunity to go out and travel and do different types of vacation activities. And I'll go into that a little bit more but to really do all of these things. So you have a lot of movement, a lot of activity. Schools are closed. Many places of work are closed throughout the duration of the holiday, with the exception, of course, of the like restaurant and you know, consumer sectors um, who are obviously busier than usual feeding and entertaining all of these Israelis that are out and about. So different families, of course, have different traditions and ways of celebrating the holiday. But I would say as a whole, and, and for us specifically as a family, it's sort of a mix of wanting to do some activities out in nature. The, the weather usually on Sukkot lends itself to that. It's a little bit cooler than at the height of the summer, but it's certainly still warm enough to be outdoors, to be hiking, to be going to beaches and, uh, and natural springs and those kinds of things. And then because the kids are on vacation and you want to have fun and keep them entertained. So there's all the other types of activities, going to movies and theme parks and gymboris and, um, and all those fun things. Of course, this is all totally aside from for those that celebrate the religious parts of the holiday, right? Building and decorating the sukkah and having meals with family and the synagogue celebrations, which there's certainly a lot of between the <laughs> beginning and end of the holiday and Shabbat in the middle. So we've been doing a mix of all of those things. And the country feels very um, busy and festive and surprisingly normal for what the COVID situation is right now. I would say other than seeing people with masks and some types of establishments having a green pass requirement, 
it's really business as usual. The streets are full, traffic is horrendous, restaurants are overflowing. I am so, so it's, so it's, it's been fun. So a significant difference over last year's uh, Sukkot holiday. To a certain extent, I can't even tell you what was going on last Sukkot because we were still uh, in quarantine from having been sick with COVID. So uh, it was definitely quieter. But yes, I think also um, for everyone, I think we were still in a lockdown last Sukkot. I mean, it started over, you know, Rosh Hashanah and I think did continue through Sukkot, if I'm not mistaken, last year. So yes, very, very different. You mentioned uh, both synagogue and extracurricular activities outside and in uh, theme parks. When you were in synagogue, full crowds, normal crowds for a holiday? Um. Yes and no. I would say yes, normal crowd size, but different in terms of how synagogues have adapted to COVID. Most synagogues are still holding all services outdoors um, because they would not be able to have large numbers of people indoors um, without observing all of these green pass requirements, which would require them to turn away, of course, a certain number of people. And there are synagogues um, that even though they are outside, are, while it's not required by law, are being even more stringent and still requiring people to have the green pass uh, to make you know all of their participants and congregants feel comfortable. So I would say feels like you know, joyous celebration and and sizable crowds, but still outdoors, which again, sort of like the masks, we've gotten used to it. Like it doesn't even seem strange anymore that we're, you know, praying and meeting outdoors and some places with a, a tent, some sort of a covering um, that in places that we never did before, but they've come to feel like normal sanctuaries and places to have services, I guess. It's uh, an appropriate uh, way to observe the holidays out in the desert, right? Outside. (laughs) Uh, What's it like walking around and seeing all the different types of sukkahs that are, that people put up or they're pretty standard or there's some unique ones. Have you seen anything that's really been unusual? Um, I'll tell you one thing that struck me this year, because I had the opportunity just based on what, what activities we were doing and the paths that we took to get to them, it struck me how different neighborhoods can look so different in terms of like what percentage of balconies have Sukkot on them and what types they have. Um, So I didn't see anything wildly unusual in terms of how they're shaped or what they're made out of. You know, in Israel, you sort of have kind of two standard types, either with white cloth walls, sometimes plain white and sometimes decorated on one side of it. And then you have wooden ones. And I would say that's still what you see. Um, But what I... One thing I noticed this year, which I guess isn't new, but maybe getting older and more worried, it struck me more this year. There were a couple of places where I saw Sukkot built 
like hanging off the sides of buildings in places that are not normally a balcony, meaning that this person's apartment doesn't have a balcony year round, but for the holiday, they, I hope, I really hope professionally had someone build like a metal shelf that is attached to the side of the building, which they then built a sukkah on top of. Some of them seeming like totally freestanding. I mean, they have, I don't know what the technical word is it is for it, but like a metal guide wire on a diagonal, let's say, from you know, higher up on the building toward the lowest, furthest point out of this metal surface. So is it kind of like the window washing setup that uh, they have, you know, from the high rises? Not like scaffolding. No, not like that. Much more precarious looking. Um, And so some of them have what looks like nothing. I mean, they have nothing under them. They have something that's holding from the bottom of this shelf attached up on a 45 degree angle a bit higher up on the side of the building, these metal wires. And some of them have just that. And others, if it's only on what in Israel is called the first floor, because we also have a ground floor, but in in America, we call the second floor. Some of them, if that's where they are, have these spindly little metal legs also holding them up. But they look very precarious. Um, I haven't heard about any food, food, food you know, having difficulties. But as I passed a few of these, I thought, I'm not sure I'd want to be in that sukkah. Um, And then again, like I said before, there were some neighborhoods where I was really struck by, you know, how many of the balconies have sukkot on them. I would say in our neighborhood, it's maybe, I don't know, I would say less than half. Right. If you're walking around the neighborhood, you can see lots of balconies that are not covered and could have a sukkah built on them and don't because it's not of interest to those families or whatever. Um, but then there were other neighborhoods where it was wall to wall or balcony to balcony, I guess, sukkot. And that was really interesting just to see how, you know, the religious communities, which makes sense, right? We know there are neighborhoods that are more religious than others. Um, But it's very striking when you see it during Sukkot time. So maybe if you're out and about tomorrow before the Chag begins, you could take a couple of pictures of the different uh, Sukkot and we can post them on the podcast site. Sure, I can try. But, but, mm-hmm. but don't don't uh, don't knock yourself out over that. I'm not a great photographer, but I will see if I can find some interesting looking ones. Yeah, I think it'd be interesting for people to see. You know, the contrast that you mentioned between America and Israel in terms of Sukkot and the holiday. Uh, for all, most of my time living in America, Sukkot has never really been a major holiday for people. It's been one of mine. I've you know tried to put up a sukkah most years and. Mine was kind of quiet this year. I didn't have a chance to bring too many guests into my sukkah. But I've noticed that each year there are fewer and fewer people putting up sukkahs, uh, at least in Omaha. And it bothers me because I think it's one of the great holidays that we have in our repertoire of holidays to really share with each other kind of the festive nature of the holiday. 
very few people also go to synagogue. I mean, I was there for Sukkot uh, and, you know, not many people. So it's just not one of those holidays that people in America, at least in the Midwest, have really taken on as a serious holiday. And it's unfortunate because I think it's a great holiday. It kind of brings me now to the point that I want to talk to you a little bit about, and that's the unique nature of the holidays as they're, they're observed in the diaspora versus that in Israel. And your prime minister, Naftali Bennett, is on his way to New York to give his speech to the UN. And I, I read uh, recently that he will be traveling back to Israel at the conclusion of the holiday as it is in Israel, but not the conclusion of the holiday as it is in America. I wonder if that's making any news in Israel or people just don't pay any attention to it. Or is the fact that he's given a speech at the UN even of interest to people in Israel? Uh, well, I'll answer this the latter question first. Yes, it, you know, it certainly is of interest to Israelis that I am Prime Minister Bennett will be speaking at the UN. It, you know, it's a big deal. And we're always eager to see how we as Israelis are received on the international stage and particularly by a body that has been extremely critical um, and Israelis would say, you know, held a double standard. I don't think, I think most people who have anything, any type of affinity for Israel would say that the UN has been, you know, overly harsh in a lot of ways and, and helped Israel to, to a double standard that other nations have not been held to. I, um, I would agree with that. Yeah. So, uh, so yes, but definitely, you know, what he will say there and how it will be received is of interest. I don't think anybody's expecting any major policy changes to come out of it or that anything, you know, surprising will, will happen or be said, but yes, we're paying attention. Um, in terms of Bennett traveling on what is for diaspora Jews a holiday, but is not a holiday for Israeli Jews. No, that's not interesting at all. I um, It doesn't matter how religious one is in Israel. This isn't a question of Orthodox versus non-Orthodox. There is no requirement on any understanding of any level of religiosity for Israeli Jews who live in Israel full-time to observe a second day of any of the festival holidays. Um, so even as an observant Orthodox Jew, there is no reason for, for Bennett not to travel on that day. Um, and even, and many Americans may know this if they have um, themselves or sent a child to spend a year course or some significant amount of time in Israel, even for Americans, usually the tradition is that if you're going to be in Israel for all three of the festival holidays, meaning for nine months or most of a year, then, then that American who's here in Israel would also not observe the second day, even if you're quite religious. It's just not, it's not necessary when you're in the land of Israel. So fun tidbit. And if people are looking for extra reasons, reasons to want to come to Israel, if you come here and stay long enough, you can have a 
more celebration with less religious scripture. Well, there you go. That's a sales pitch. Mm-hmm. Um, talking about the UN and um, Prime Minister Bennett's speech uh, tomorrow, uh, last week, uh, Mahmoud Abbas, the leader of the Palestinian Authority, made quite a, a statement uh, in a speech he gave uh, uh, requiring Israel to go back to the 1967 borders. What kind of um, feedback or response did that have in Israel? Um, so it has had some really interesting feedback, not necessarily, well, in certain parts of Israel, but uh, more interestingly amongst um, the Palestinian population, who, uh, especially on social media, had a, a very strong response, basically mocking that Abbas, you know, would make such a statement, sort of along the lines of this is much too little, much too late, right? That he suddenly has woken up and realized that there's an issue of Palestinian nationalist uh, ambitions not being realized, you know, and, and people who have had those issues on their minds for a very long time feel like, well, what, all of a sudden now he thinks he's just going to say, okay, Israel, you have one year and it's going to make any difference. Um, what he hoped to achieve by, by making that statement ultimatum, um, I'm not really sure because the... I mean, I, I, yeah, I just don't, I don't see how it strengthens his position. Maybe he did hope to, to win over some of the many Palestinians, even though he is the current leader that do not support him. Um, it doesn't seem so far to have worked. Okay. So we will pay attention to that. Uh, keeping current events and uh, difference of opinion and such uh, as a topic this past week, there was a vote to provide more funding for the Iron Dome in Israel that the U.S. Congress would, had some trouble with. Uh, at the end of the day, they, they did, the House did vote to pass funding for the Iron Dome. There was quite a bit of news about the people uh, within the Congress that did not support it and created quite a bit of tension within the ultra-progressive group within the Democratic Party. Did that play out at all in Israel? It definitely made news. And I think it's something that Israelis do take seriously because while we are well aware that, you know, um, the Israeli position vis-a-vis American politics is precarious and that there are differences as to how we can expect the United States to want to be an ally under a democratic president and this particular democratic president than than what the relationship was with Trump, Um, whatever else we might want to say about Trump, you know, even knowing that that relationship has changed and will continue to change, I don't think that Israelis were expecting 
something as seemingly um, like universally accepted as helping Israel to defend itself would be called into question at this point in time. Um, it's very different to for the United States to question how much funding or exactly what kind of funding it might want to give Israel for other types of activities. Yes, the settlements are a question, and yes, other types of weapons, you know, maybe could be called into question. But for a, a system which is 100% defensive and which we know without a doubt has saved thousands and thousands of lives, and if we don't continue to have it, I don't, you know, want to go into exactly what that would look like even, but, you know, for the United States to not be sure that it wants to help out with that is a very big deal. I, I, it's puzzling because the Iron Dome just doesn't protect Israelis or Jews. It protects everybody that lives in that area, Palestinians, Christians, Muslims, etc. And why, again, to your point, why would the elected officials in America be so opposed to supporting the defensive nature of the Iron Dome? I think it is something that we have to pay attention to in terms of the politics in America still struggling with the American-Israel relationship, and I hope that over the course of time, Israel and America can really build a stronger sense of why Israel is important to America and why America is important to Israel. Um, politics um, is local, uh, but also in the sense of, of world uh, affairs, politics is really global, and we're seeing that almost on a daily basis. Something that we'll talk about next week and, um, is the election in Germany. Uh, I find to be very interesting. I don't know if it's of interest in, of anybody in Israel, but Angela Merkel, the prime minister of Germany, is uh, her term is up and elections are taking place today. Well, we will uh, keep posted to see how those turn out. I am. And just on a, one more note with what we were talking about um, related to the Iron Dome funding, you know, not to be too... Um, alarmist. But I do think that it's important to think about, you know, we've talked in other episodes about the tensions for American Jews to publicly or vocally support Israel. And I think this is a great example of a time when it would be so important for American Jews to take the role of publicly you know, calling out and pointing out that to withhold funding for a defense system is very different than supporting occupation, right? Or, you know, thinking that apartheid is okay. You can question all sorts of things about Israel, but to not, you know, continue to fund a program that is entirely defensive, as we've already said, like that's, that's different. I am... Um, and, and, and I think it, it does present an opportunity for American Jews who still feel like they can, and I hope there are many of them, to, to explain that nuance, right, and, to, and to, help, uh, to help make that case. So I know that's part of our mission for doing this podcast, is helping to educate the American Jewish community on the value of 
why supporting Israel is important. And it does take a lot of education. And we hope to provide that in our 20-minute segments. With that, Liz, I want to thank you very much for your time today and enjoy the rest of the holiday. And for those listening, this has been Israel Rebound um, with your co-hosts, Liz Feldstern in Jerusalem and Alan Potash in Omaha. Thank you again. Thanks. Happy Sukkot, everybody.